This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I do not feel obliged to believe that that same God who has endowed us with senses, reason, and intellect has intended to forego their use and by some other means to give us knowledge which we can attain by them. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and those were the words of Galileo Galilei. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing Galileo Galilei, known as the father of modern science and the man whose work proved that the Earth orbits the sun. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, we'd really appreciate if you could leave a five-star review. But now, let's explore the life of Galileo Galilei. Galileo's importance to modern science and astronomy can't be overstated. He used precise mathematical equations to upend the Western world's understanding of the universe and prove wrong the popular belief that the sun orbited the Earth. His experiments often focused on how math could be used to help explain the physical world and physical phenomena, and he would disprove older, accepted theories without a single glance backwards. But his pioneering scientific discoveries made him the enemy of the Catholic Church, and he became a target of the Roman Inquisition. On February 15, 1564, in the town of Pisa, Julia Galilei gave birth to her first child, Galileo. His given name, Galileo, was an Italianized version of Galilee, a mountainous region in Israel. Galileo grew up in a lively household with five younger siblings. His father, Vincenzo, was a composer and a lute player, and his home was filled with music. Many of the Galilei children grew up playing musical instruments. Both Galileo and his younger brother, Michelangelo, played the lute. Galileo and his father, Vincenzo, shared a sense of scientific curiosity. Vincenzo didn't just want to play music. He wanted to understand how sound worked. 
He liked to experiment with the role that tension played in the sound of his instrument's strings by testing strings of various lengths. He had his son Galileo help him come up with mathematical equations to explain and justify his discoveries about the nature of sound waves. And these childhood experiments fueled Galileo's love of math and science. In the early 1570s, eight-year-old Galileo and his family moved to Florence to be nearer to his father's relatives. His education improved by leaps and bounds. Perhaps this was because Florence was the center of the Italian Renaissance, a movement revolutionizing the development of art, history, culture, and most important to Galileo, science. Florence, like Pisa, was part of the Grand Duchy of Tuscany. Both were ruled by the Medici family, a wealthy banking family and rulers of Florence for the past 140 years. The Medici were among the most fervent patrons of the arts and sciences, and they helped make the Renaissance a reality. When the Galilei family first moved to Florence, Tuscany would have been ruled by Cosimo I, the first Grand Duke of the new duchy. By the time Galileo was about 14, he was ready to attend classes at Vallombrosa Abbey, about 18 miles away from his home in Florence. He was a top student and did well in math, science, and Italian. Galileo was also a very devout Catholic. He briefly contemplated joining a religious order, but his father wanted him to study medicine. So in 1581, 17-year-old Galileo began attending the University of Pisa. He tried to focus on medicine, but soon found himself drawn to more theoretical math and science. He ended up abandoning his major in medicine and studying math and philosophy instead. Galileo's first biographer, Vincenzo Viviani, wrote that as a student, Galileo became interested in the study of pendulums, weights attached to strings that were able to swing freely. You've seen one if you've ever seen one of those old grandfather clocks. The pendulum is the swinging weight inside the clock. According to Viviani, Galileo's curiosity was piqued when he saw a lamp in the ceiling of the student chapel swinging in his first year or two of school. It made him wonder about how long it took for the pendulum to reach each of the peaks of its swing, and whether that was affected by how heavy the weight was. All sorts of questions occurred to him about the mathematics behind the movement. In that way, Galileo's investigation into these questions was a natural outgrowth of the sound experiments he and his father conducted together. Galileo found his own experiments much more interesting than his classes, and his finances could not support the rest of his schooling. He dropped out of school and began to make a living teaching math to the children of wealthy nobles in Florence and Siena. One of Galileo's students was Cosimo Medici, he was the son of Ferdinando I de Medici, the Grand Duke of Tuscany. Ferdinando wanted his son Cosimo to have the best education available, and Galileo impressed both father and son with his ability to teach math in a way that felt accessible. Galileo also continued with his own scientific experiments. In 1856, 22-year-old Galileo wrote a treatise called The Little Balance, Inspired by the teachings of Archimedes, the little balance proposed the use of an innovative scale, which helped the user determine the proportion of a metal within an alloy. 
That way, jewelers and the like would know exactly how much gold or silver was in a piece they examined and could set the price or the payment accordingly. It was a fascinating exploration of the connection between theoretical mathematics and the physical world, one that connected mass and weight to clear equations that could teach something new about how the world worked. In 1588, 24-year-old Galileo decided to apply for a professor position in mathematics at Bologna University. Unfortunately, his decision to leave school before finishing his degree came back to haunt him. Bologna University didn't want to hire a college dropout, and they rejected his application. So Galileo focused on his own private teaching practice instead. He was gaining a venerable reputation for being able to teach math to even the most recalcitrant child. His papers on mathematics were also garnering him attention, as were his lectures. In 1588, Galileo gave a few lectures at the Accademia Fiorentina about hell. Well, this topic might seem a bit counterintuitive for a scientist, but it was a pretty popular idea. People in deeply Catholic places like the Italian peninsula had long believed in the actual physical existence of hell, and they had a pretty good idea of what it was like thanks to another Florentine. Back in 1320, famed Florentine poet Dante Alighieri published his Divine Comedy, most memorable for its description of the nine circles of hell. Dante's Inferno, as this part of the poem is known, inspired pretty much every modern depiction of hell. And in his hometown of Florence, studying the physical structure and size of hell, as Dante had written about it, was a popular academic pastime. People viewed Dante's vision as fact and tried to come up with theories to explain its existence. But while Dante had definitely been a world-class poet, he wasn't a scientist or a mathematician. He'd crafted a fictional narrative, not an atlas. And Galileo was one of the first people to point out that Dante's hell did not line up with anything about how scientists knew the world worked. First off, if the physical structure of hell was laid out as it was in the books, the world would literally collapse in on itself. So it was safe to say that hell couldn't possibly exist as described in Dante's Inferno. Second, the idea of Lucifer as an enlarged man didn't stand up to Galileo's scrutiny. Scaling organisms up requires a complete restructuring of the original design in order for things like a heart and a brain to continue working. That's why you don't see the creepy compound eyes of a fly on larger animals. And it's why you'll never see giant bugs take over the world. With the fame, as well as the infamy that came from these lectures and these papers on the nature of hell, Galileo soon gained the patronage of an influential noble named Guidobaldo del Monte. With Guidobaldo del Monte backing him, 25-year-old Galileo was able to become the chair of mathematics at the University of Pisa in 1589, but he didn't get off to a good start. The River Arno flooded, and Galileo missed the first six lectures he was meant to teach. Even though the delay wasn't his fault, the university still fined him for the missed classes. Galileo chafed under the strict academic rules. He couldn't stand wearing a toga, the standard gown for university professors. He proclaimed that only idiots would wear such clothing and that he'd rather run around naked. Needless to say, the University of Pisa's administrators were not amused by Galileo's open disgust for everything connected to traditional university 
university life, and they fined him for refusing to wear a toga. Just two years after Galileo began teaching at the university, his father Vincenzo died in 1591. As the eldest son, Galileo was now financially responsible for his mother and younger siblings. Galileo's sister Virginia added to his financial responsibilities when she married Benedetto Landucci sometime in 1591, the same year her father died. Landucci was promised a large dowry when he and Virginia were married. With his father dead, Galileo was now responsible for Virginia's dowry payments. Galileo dealt with his grief and financial challenges by diving deeper into his mathematical experiments. One of these experiments challenged Aristotle's theory that heavier objects fell at a faster rate than lighter objects. To test the validity of Aristotle's theory, Galileo dropped two balls of drastically different weights off of the Tower of Pisa. According to Aristotle's theory, the heavier object should have hit the ground much sooner than the lighter object, especially given the great height of the tower. But Galileo proved Aristotle wrong. The two balls hit the ground at the same time, demonstrating that objects in a freefall move at the same acceleration. If this sounds confusing, don't worry, you're not alone. Galileo's colleagues were confused about the result as well. So let's take a thought experiment of Galileo's to explain where he's coming from. Galileo proposed connecting a heavy object to a lighter object with a string between them. Uh, let's say you're tying an apple to an atlas. We'll call that system A for apple and atlas. Now, drop system A from someplace high and watch it as it speeds towards the ground. What would you see happen in the air? Well, if you follow Aristotle's principles, you'd expect to see the atlas fall faster than the apple. The string tying them together would be pulled tight, and the atlas would pull the apple down with it. But system A, that is the apple, the atlas, and the string all taken together, is heavier than any one of its single components. Shouldn't the entirety of System A, now that they're connected as a single object, fall at a faster pace than any of the single objects it's made up of? But then why would the Atlas be pulling the apple down to match its own pace? Shouldn't System A all be falling as one object together? What if you tied the apple directly to the Atlas instead of keeping them on opposite sides of the string? Would it fall at a different speed? Why should it matter how the objects are connected as long as the connection is present? Uh, these inconsistencies within the Aristotelian model of free-falling objects are what made Galileo question the model and ultimately disregard it to prove that objects fall at the same rate of acceleration. Even if one object is heavier than another, even if the two objects are tied together, everything descends to Earth at the same rate of acceleration. Galileo's bold experiment unsettled his colleagues. In the 16th century, Aristotle was still considered one of the greatest scientific thinkers of all time. And Galileo's peers didn't appreciate that he was throwing Aristotle's cherished principles into doubt. Galileo also pushed the administrators at the University of Pisa to their breaking point with his irreverent lectures. In one memorable class, he mocked the other professors at the university by comparing them to different types of alcoholic beverages. He noted, quote, Men are like wine flasks, 
go to a tavern, look at the flasks before you drink red wine. Some bottles don't have much decoration on them, they're dusty and naked to the bone, but full of such wine that people rhapsodize on it, calling it glorious and divine. Then look at the other bottles with the handsome labels. When you taste them, they're full of air or perfume or rouge. These are bottles fit only to pee into. End quote. Unsurprisingly, Galileo was let go from his professorship position at the University of Pisa in 1592. This meant Galileo needed to quickly find another source of income to support his mother and younger siblings. Making things even more challenging. Galileo was still on the hook for his younger sister Virginia's dowry after her marriage to Benedetto Landucci. He was supposed to be paying the dowry off in installments, and he had struggled to scrape together the payments on his professor's salary. After losing his job, Galileo couldn't afford to pay his sister's husband Landucci anything. Landucci was furious with Galileo's delayed payments. He warned Galileo that if he didn't get the money he was owed, he was going to have the young scientist arrested. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to historical figures. In 1592, 28-year-old Galileo Galilei was strapped for cash. His irreverent attitude had cost him his professorship position at the University of Pisa. He was behind in his dowry payments to his sister's husband. If he didn't find another source of income soon, his brother-in-law might have him imprisoned. Luckily, later that year, Galileo was offered a new position teaching math at the University of Padua. The salary wasn't high enough to pay for all of his family's expenses, so he continued to tutor students on the side. In 1597, he also began selling his students a military compass that he had invented himself. The compass was so popular that 33-year-old Galileo soon had to hire an employee to mass-produce them for him full-time. The compass had a wide variety of practical applications. As Deva Sobel explains in her biography, Galileo's Daughter, quote, by 1599, after various modifications, the device functioned as an early pocket calculator that could compute compound interest or monetary exchange rates, extract square roots for arranging armies on the battlefield, and determine the proper charge for any size cannon. Shipwrights at the nearby Venetian arsenal also adopted Galileo's revolutionary compass to help them execute and test new hull designs in scale models before building them full size, end quote. Around 1599, while he was teaching at the University of Padua, he met a bright, sociable young woman named Marina di Andrea Gamba. The two soon fell deeply in love, but they were not considered a suitable match. This wasn't due to their age difference. 22-year-old Marina was over a decade younger than 35-year-old Galileo, but it was common for older men to marry much younger women in the 16th century. The bigger issue was that they were from completely different social classes. But Marina was so in love that she engaged in a relationship with Galileo anyway. 
The two never actually lived together, but they spent enough private time in each other's company to start a family. In 1600, the pair had their first child, Virginia. At age 36, Galileo was finally a father. And just one year later, in 1601, Marina gave birth to their second child, Livia. Because Galileo and Marina weren't married, he couldn't legally acknowledge his paternity. Marina was the only one listed on the girls' baptismal records. Galileo taught his daughters to read and write. He was especially close to his firstborn Virginia, whose intelligence rivaled her father's. In 1601, 37-year-old Galileo's younger sister, Livia, married Tadeo Galetti. Galileo, along with his brother Michelangelo, promised to pay Galetti a large dowry. Galetti received half the money up front for the dowry and the rest through a five-year payment plan. This was yet another strain on Galileo's meager salary, and he had to borrow hundreds of ducats to pay his initial share of the dowry. But still he pursued his scientific interests. In 1602, Galileo wrote a letter to a colleague detailing some new findings on the nature of pendulums. Specifically, he spoke of his realization that there wasn't a connection between the length of the arc of a pendulum swing and the length of time it took to make that swing happen. Instead, each swing of a pendulum took exactly the same amount of time as every other swing. It's a good thing he zoned out in those boring university lectures as a student, or we might not have had accurate timepieces for another few hundred years. In 1606, Marina and Galileo welcomed their third child, a son named Vincenzo, after Galileo's father. Galileo also continued work on his experiments with pendulums in the early 1600s. By 1609, at age 45, Galileo was ready to create a mathematical experiment about gravity that built on his Leaning Tower of Pisa experiment. He already suspected that all objects fell at the same speed regardless of weight and height because gravity pulled everything to the Earth at a consistent rate of acceleration. He called this the law of fall, but now he needed the math to prove it. So Galileo further buttressed his Leaning Tower of Pisa experiment by providing mathematical proof that supported his original experiment. He dropped various objects, then used the distance that the objects fell and the time it took for them to hit the ground to calculate their rates of acceleration. In every instance, each equation yielded the same acceleration rate of 9.8 meters per second squared. It didn't matter how much an object weighed or how far it fell, the rate of acceleration was the same. This mathematical evidence further dismantled Aristotle's theories on physics, and Galileo's findings angered his colleagues. In the spring of 1609, Galileo became fascinated with a new invention known as the telescope, which magnified objects by reflecting light through glass lenses. After taking one apart and analyzing it, Galileo realized that he could bend light more effectively with thicker convex lenses. Galileo's version of the telescope magnified objects more than twice as much as the original device. In the summer of 1609, 45-year-old Galileo showed his new telescope to the Venetian Senate and greatly impressed the senators. Galileo was offered tenure and an increased salary at the University of Padua where he worked. Galileo continued to refine his telescope. By December of 1609, Galileo had a telescope that was capable of magnifying objects up to 20 times their original sizes. 
This enabled Galileo to study the moon in ways that astronomers before him were never able to do. Galileo used his telescope to document the moon's phases. His improved lenses also enabled him to observe that the surface of the moon was rocky and cratered in some parts. This observation may not seem groundbreaking today, but in Galileo's time, the moon was seen by the Catholic Church as a perfect work of art crafted by God. By observing that the moon was not actually a perfectly smooth ball in the sky, Galileo was putting himself in danger of being accused of heresy. In January of 1610, Galileo's telescope continued to yield new discoveries. Galileo found that Jupiter had four moons and that there were stars so far away from the Earth that no one had even known of their existence before Galileo's new telescope. Galileo wrote up his findings in a book called Siderius Nuncius, or Starry Messenger. He dedicated the book to his former math student, Cosimo II, of the Medici family, now the influential Grand Duke of Tuscany. Galileo also named the moons of Jupiter the Medician stars to honor the Medici family. He hoped his flattery of the wealthy Medici family would inspire them to help his career. Galileo's ploy worked. Cosimo II was won over by his former tutor's dedication and appointed Galileo the mathematician and philosopher of the great Duke of Tuscany, which was a huge step up from his previous position as a moderately paid professor. But Galileo's discovery of Jupiter's moons challenged another well-established theory introduced by the Greek philosophers Aristotle and Ptolemy. The Greek philosophers believed that the Earth was the center of the universe and celestial objects rotated in perfect circles around it. And yet Galileo had observed Jupiter's moons orbiting around Jupiter. This proved that not all celestial bodies orbited around the Earth. Galileo also observed that his view of Venus through the telescope was sometimes blocked by other celestial bodies as it moved through the sky. If Venus was orbiting around Earth, there would be nothing to obscure Galileo's view of the planet. The patterns of Venus's appearances in the night sky implied that his view of the planet was likely being blocked by the sun. This meant that all the planets were orbiting around the sun, not the Earth. Galileo's observations disproved Aristotle and Ptolemy's theory of the Earth being the center of the universe. Galileo was essentially endorsing the heliocentric model of the universe proposed by Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus back in 1543. Copernicus believed that the planets orbited the sun, and Galileo's observations suggested that Copernicus was right all along. It was a major discovery about the nature of the universe, but Galileo soon needed to deal with a tragedy far closer to home. In 1612, Galileo's partner, Marina, died in Padua. Galileo wasn't prepared to shoulder sole responsibility for his two daughters, 12-year-old Virginia and 11-year-old Livia. He also feared his daughters would never find suitable husbands when they came of age. This was partially because Galileo didn't have money for their dowries, but the main reason for Galileo's concern was the fact that he had never married the girl's mother. Virginia and Livia were considered illegitimate, and this would make it nearly impossible for them to marry into respectable Italian families. 48-year-old Galileo concluded that the best option for his girls was to put them in a nunnery. 
In 1613, he decided to send them to the San Mateo convent in Arcetri, only a couple miles away from Florence. It was against the rules for two biological sisters to gain admittance into the same convent, but Galileo petitioned the Sisters of St. Clair to make an exception. Author Deva Sobel theorized that Galileo feared for the well-being of his sickly, moody youngest daughter, Livia. He wanted his trusted eldest daughter, Virginia, to watch over her. Galileo successfully persuaded the San Mateo convent to admit both sisters. Galileo continued with his astronomy experiments after sending his daughters to the convent. He looked through his telescope on a cloudy day and observed spots on the sun. This offered further evidence that the sun wasn't a perfect celestial body that existed without bumps and blemishes, angering many Catholics. A German Jesuit astronomer named Christoph Scheiner insisted to Galileo that the spots on the sun were not spots at all. Scheiner believed that the spots were moons that were orbiting the sun. This was an attempt to reinforce the idea that the sun was a perfectly smooth, flawless celestial body created by God. But in 1613, Galileo revealed this counter-argument was wrong by measuring the speed at which the sunspots moved across the surface of the sun as it rotated. His measurements proved that the spots had to be on the surface of the sun. There was no way they could be moons. By this point, Galileo was having trouble reconciling specific passages in the Bible with the theory that the Earth revolved around the sun. In 1613, he sent a letter to his student, Benedetto Castelli, discussing his concerns. Unfortunately, the letter ended up in the wrong hands, and it was soon shown to the Inquisition in Rome. The Catholic Church had been concerned by the rise of new Protestant religions throughout Europe in the 1500s and instigated the Roman Inquisition in the 16th century. The Inquisition's goal was to put a halt to anything and anyone it deemed heretical. And by 1615, Galileo was in the Inquisition's crosshairs. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, let's continue our story. In 1615, 51-year-old Galileo's scientific evidence in favor of a heliocentric universe came under the scrutiny of the Roman Inquisition. The heliocentric model directly contradicted the church-supported theory that the universe revolved around the Earth and that all of the planets, the stars, the sun, and the moon were perfect heavenly spheres. Galileo argued to the Inquisition that his research wasn't heresy, since he was simply gathering data and not making any theological claims. Some theologians even agreed with him that supporting a heliocentric model of the universe wasn't blasphemy. Unfortunately, the Inquisition ruled against Galileo and forbade him from promoting the heliocentric model in 1616. That was the same year that his daughter Virginia, now 15, took her vows at the San Mateo convent. Livia donned the veil a year later in 1617 when she was 15. Livia's new religious name at the convent became Archangela, while Virginia picked Maria Celeste. 
As you may have guessed, Celeste was a reference to her father's work in astronomy. As nuns, the two girls were not allowed to leave the convent at any time. Virginia, now Maria Celeste, was devoutly religious like her father and made the best of her life at the convent. She kept herself busy at the apothecary, creating remedies for her father's various illnesses. And she frequently wrote loving letters to her father, informing him of the goings-on and inquiring about his work. As author Davis Sobel explained, quote, She alone of Galileo's three children mirrored his own brilliance, industry, and sensibility, and by virtue of these qualities became his confidant, end quote. Galileo's younger daughter, Livia, now Archangela, was apparently unhappy at being consigned to the convent. She was much quieter than her sister, often ill and possibly depressed. No letters from Archangela have been saved, but historians suspect she had a strained relationship with her father. Maria Celeste often expressed her worries about her sister's physical and mental well-being in her letters to Galileo. She once wrote to her father to explain that she had given up the private room that she and Archangela had shared because her sister, quote, often finds interaction with others unbearable. Beyond that, Archangela's nature being very different from mine and rather eccentric, it pays for me to acquiesce to her in many things in order to be able to live in the kind of peace and unity befitting the intense love we bear each other, end quote. Galileo's daughters lived in extreme poverty at the convent. After giving up the private room to her sister, Maria Celeste slept in a group dormitory. Her food was often scarce or rotten, and her health was poor. Galileo helped out where he could and often sent Maria food and money along with his letters. While his daughters struggled with life at their Catholic monastery, Galileo refused to let the Catholic Church's Inquisition halt his efforts to better understand the universe. And in 1618, 54-year-old Galileo got into a heated exchange with a Jesuit math professor named Orazio Grassi over three comets that had appeared in the sky. Grassi insisted the comets orbited the Earth in a circle, Galileo refuted Grassi's arguments in a series of papers. He also insulted many leading Jesuit scientists and angered a sizable contingent of Jesuit math and science professors. But not everyone was angry at Galileo. In 1619, Galileo's friend, the Duke of Tuscany, agreed to legitimize the scientist's 13-year-old son. The boy, now officially named Vincenzo Galilei, decided to follow in the footsteps of his grandfather and namesake by pursuing a career as a lute player. Tragedy struck again when Galileo's younger sister Virginia Landucci died in 1623. Galileo's eldest daughter, Maria Celeste, wrote tenderly to him from her convent in Arcetri. Quote, We are terribly saddened by the death of your cherished sister, our dear aunt, but our sorrow at losing her is as nothing compared to our concern for your sake, because your suffering will be all the greater, sire, as truly you have no one else left in your world, now that she, who could not have been more precious to you, has departed. And therefore we can only imagine how you sustain the severity of such a sudden and completely unexpected blow." End quote. Galileo himself became seriously ill in the summer of 1623 when he was 59, worrying Maria deeply, but he recovered and pressed on with his work. He published The Assayer in 1623, expanding on many of his arguments about scientific methodology. 
Galileo essentially believed that math was the key to understanding the workings of the universe. Galileo wrote, quote, Philosophy is written in this grand book, The Universe, which stands continually open to our gaze. But the book cannot be understood unless one first learns to comprehend the language and read the letters in which it is composed. It is written in the language of mathematics, and its characters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures, without which it is humanly impossible to understand a single word of it." End quote. In 1623, Galileo's friend Maffeo Barberini was appointed as Pope Urban VIII. He was a fan of Galileo's work and gave him permission to write a book about his sun-centered theories of the universe. However, the new pope asked Galileo to include Urban's own beliefs in the Aristotelian universe where the planets and sun orbited the earth. Galileo promised he would. But when Galileo published this new book... Dialogue concerning the two chief world systems nine years later in 1632, the Pope was furious. Galileo's book included three protagonists, Salviati, Sagredo, and Simplicio. Salviati was an intelligent character who argued in favor of a sun-centered universe. Simplicio was a foolish man who argued in favor of Aristotle's earth-centered universe. And Segredo was a sort of audience stand-in judging the validity of both philosophers' theories. What got Galileo in trouble was the character Simplicio, who supported the same views as the Pope. The name Simplicio was likely a play on the Italian word for simple. In other words, Simplicio was supposed to be an aptly named simpleton for believing in an Earth-centric universe. Unfortunately for Galileo, Pope Urban caught on to the fact that Galileo was essentially calling him an idiot for believing in an Earth-centric universe. In his anger, the Pope transformed from Galileo's most powerful ally into his most dangerous enemy. In 1633, Pope Urban summoned 69-year-old Galileo to Rome to be questioned by the ruthless Italian inquisitor Vincenzo Maculani. On April 12th, Galileo faced an initial round of questioning. He stood accused of promoting a sun-centric universe and violating the Inquisition's ruling in 1616 that forbade him from promoting heliocentrism. The trial was difficult for Galileo to endure, but his daughter Maria Celeste was a source of comfort and support. She may have been a devout Catholic nun, but she fully supported his scientific writings and firmly believed in his innocence. Maria wrote to her father on April 20th, 1633, just a week after his trial began. Quote, This gives me great distress, convinced as I am that you find yourself with scant peace of mind and perhaps also deprived of all bodily comforts. On the other hand, considering the need for events to reach this stage in order for the authorities to dismiss you, as well as the kindliness with which everyone there has treated you up till now, and above all, the justice of the cause and your innocence in this instance, I console myself and cling to the expectation of a happy and prosperous triumph with the help of blessed God, to whom my heart never ceases to cry out, commending you with all the love and trust it contains." End quote. 
Maria may have believed in her father's innocence, but the Inquisition wasn't about to let Galileo off easily. The initial round of questioning was grueling. However, Galileo couldn't stop himself from offering some rather wry responses to the Inquisitor's questions. For example, the Inquisitor asked Galileo if he would recognize his controversial book, Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems, on sight. Galileo replied dryly, quote, I hope so. I hope that if it is shown to me, I shall recognize it, end quote. Galileo also insisted that he had tried his best to prove that the Earth was stationary in his book. He told the Inquisition, quote, I have neither maintained nor defended in that book the opinion that the Earth moves and that the Sun is stationary, but have rather demonstrated the opposite of the Copernican opinion and shown that the arguments of Copernicus are weak and inconclusive, end quote. This was a rather odd argument for Galileo to make. After all, he was on trial because his book promoted a sun-centered universe over the traditional Catholic belief that the Earth stood still. But Galileo was a devout Catholic, and he genuinely believed that he had done the best job he could in his book to support the Catholic dogma of an Earth-centric universe. But the Inquisition wasn't convinced. A second round of questioning took place on April 30th, Galileo did have an ally in Cardinal Barberini, one of his ten Inquisition judges. It may have been Barberini who convinced Galileo to walk back a lot of his theories supporting a sun-centered universe. Galileo now claimed that any support for the Copernican universe in his books was completely unintentional. He said, quote, My error, then, has been, and I confess it, one of vainglorious ambition and of pure ignorance and inadvertence, end quote. This second round of questioning was especially hard on Galileo. He returned exhausted to the house of Ambassador Nicolini in Rome, where he lived during his trial. The ambassador noted, quote, the poor man has come back more dead than alive. On May 10th, Galileo went before the Inquisition for a third round of questioning. This time, he offered a written defense. He insisted that he had faithfully followed the Inquisition's ruling in 1616. He wrote, I was only told not to hold or defend Copernicus's doctrine of the Earth's motion and the Sun's stability. But the Inquisition now insisted that he was warned back in 1616 not to teach in any way whatsoever the opinion of the Earth's motion and the Sun's stability. This was the crux of Galileo's defense. The original wording of the 1616 ruling never contained the broad language, teach in any way whatsoever. And if the Inquisition struck out that additional broad wording, then Galileo was clearly innocent. Galileo also pleaded with the Inquisition's ten judges to take pity on him. He was certain that months of harsh interrogation had taken years off of his life. He wrote, Lastly, it remains for me to pray you take into consideration my pitiable state of bodily indisposition, to which, at the age of 70 years, I have been reduced by 10 months of constant mental anxiety and the fatigue of a long and toilsome journey at the most inclement season, together with the loss of the greater part of the years of which, from my previous condition of health, I had the prospect." On June 16th, Pope Urban met with the ten cardinals who had presided over Galileo's trial. Galileo's pleas for leniency failed to move the Pope. He wanted Galileo to be interrogated a fourth time over his reasons for writing the book. 
He even suggested that Inquisitor Makulani torture the aging scientist. Fortunately, Inquisitor Makulani determined that the nearly 70-year-old Galileo wouldn't survive torture. And on June 21st, Galileo was brought in for his final interrogation. Galileo tried to act as though he believed in an Earth-centric universe. He stated that previously, quote, I was undecided and regarded the two opinions, those of Ptolemy and Copernicus, as disputable because either the one or the other could be true in nature. But after the said decision, assured by the prudence of the authorities, all my uncertainty stopped. And I held, as I still hold, as most true and indisputable Ptolemy's opinion, namely the stability of the earth and the motion of the sun." End quote. Unfortunately, the Inquisition's judges didn't believe him. On June 22, 1633, seven out of the ten cardinal judges signed a document convicting Galileo of heresy for promoting a heliocentric universe. His book, Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems, was banned, and he was prohibited from publishing any new books. Galileo was initially sentenced to imprisonment in Rome, but Galileo's allies convinced Pope Urban to commute the sentence to house arrest. Galileo's daughter, Maria, was thrilled at the news she wrote to her father on December 10, 1633, after she learned he was coming home. She wrote, quote, My sudden joy was as great as it was unexpected. Nor are your daughters alone in our rejoicing, but all these nuns, by their grace, give signs of true happiness. Just as so many of them have sympathized with me in my suffering, we are awaiting your arrival with great longing, and we cheer ourselves to see how the weather has cleared for your journey." End quote. In 1634, Galileo moved to a house near his daughter's convent in Archetri to live out the rest of his days. Despite his house arrest, friends continued to visit him and support him financially. He visited his beloved daughter, Maria Celeste, almost every day at her convent. Sadly, Maria died of dysentery on April 2, 1634, just a few short months after her father's arrival. She was only 33, and Galileo was devastated by the loss of his eldest child. As he had in the past, Galileo eventually dove into his work to distract himself from his grief. He wrote a new book, The Discourses and Mathematical Demonstrations Relating to Two New Sciences. The discourses essentially recapped the mathematical and scientific theories he had developed over the decades. He couldn't get it published in Italy due to the Inquisition's ban on his writings, but he was able to get the book published in Holland in 1638. It was the last book he would ever write. By 1641, 76-year-old Galileo was blind and his health was failing. He died in his sleep a year later at age 77. Despite his ill treatment at the hands of the Catholic Church and his scientific findings, Galileo maintained his faith in God through the end of his life. He wrote in a letter, Whatever the course of our lives, we should receive them as the highest gift from the hand of God, in which equally repose the power to do nothing whatever for us. Indeed, we should accept misfortune not only in thanks, but in infinite gratitude to providence, which by such means detaches us from an excessive love for earthly things and elevates our minds to the celestial and divine." End quote. Galileo's friend, Ferdinando II, Duke of Tuscany, wanted to give him a grand burial at the Basilica of Santa Croce and have Galileo laid to rest with his ancestors. 
But Pope Urban was still furious with Galileo even after his death. He insisted that as a heretic, Galileo shouldn't get such an honorable burial. So Galileo was interred in a small, insignificant room in the basilica near the novice chapel. A hundred years later, in 1737, Galileo was finally recognized for his scientific genius. Italians built a monument for Galileo at the basilica, then dug up and buried Galileo's body there. Galileo's cherished eldest daughter, Maria Celeste, was buried with him. Three of Galileo's skeletal fingers were taken from his remains when his body was moved. His middle finger is now on display at the Galileo Museum in Florence. It almost feels like a post-mortem retort to the Inquisition. Galileo's contributions to our understanding of astronomy, physics, and mathematics are legendary. And in 1989, NASA named an unmanned spacecraft Galileo to honor the venerable Italian scientist. From 1989 to 2003, the spacecraft studied Jupiter and its moons, making impressive discoveries about the planet and its atmosphere. We can only assume that Galileo, who spent his life studying the heavens, would have been proud of his namesake. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode drops every other Wednesday, but if you subscribe, you don't have to remember that. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Seems simple, but it really helps our show. See you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Lyra Kellerman and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.